This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the AI Hustle podcast, the podcast where we break down the latest in AI news, tools, and interview experts helping you hustle and do more using AI. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that over the last six months, I've been working on a stealth AI startup. Of the hundreds of projects I've covered, this is the one that I believe has the greatest potential. So today I'm excited to announce AI Box. AI Box is a no-code AI app building platform paired with the App Store for AI that lets you monetize your AI tools. The platform lets you build apps by linking together AI models like ChatGPT, MidJourney, and Eleven Labs eventually will integrate with software like Gmail, Trello, and Salesforce, so you can use AI to automate every function in your organization. To get notified when we launch and be one of the first to build on the platform, you can join the waitlist at AIbox.ai. The link is in the show notes. We are currently raising a seed round of funding. If you're an investor that is focused on disruptive tech, I'd love to tell you more about the platform. You can reach out to me at jaden at AIbox.ai. I'll leave that email in the show notes. Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by Connor Jensen, who is a technology, AI, and strategy executive who currently leaves the field CDO team at Dataiku, a platform designed to build, deploy, and manage data and AI projects. With a really diverse background that spans from being a barista, an archery instructor, to an Air Force weather forecaster, an insurance actuary, Connor brings a really unique perspective to the world of AI. So when he's not helping companies navigate their AI journeys, he enjoys spending time with his wife, seven children, and a small flock of ducks and a very fancy goose on the outskirts of Chicago. Welcome to the show, Connor. Did, it, did, I, did I sum that up right? Am I correct in your it's, intro there? It's a weird intro when I listen to it, but uh, you, hit, you hit the high <laughs> points. Thank you, Jaden. Super excited to be here. Awesome. Well, um, super happy to be on to have you on the show. For those that don't know, I met Connor uh, back at the AI4 um, conference earlier this year. Was impressed by what, some of the things he was working on. Um, really solid guy and visionary in the AI space. So excited to pick your brain, get some of your insights. What I would be curious on from your perspective, kind of to kick this off, tell us a little bit about like your background and your journey, right? So obviously we got archery instructor, we got air force, we got all these different areas. What brought you, I guess, what was your interest there? But like, what really brought you to technology? What brought you to AI? Sure. So, uh, you know, to, to not go too, too deep into it, but I've sort of been, you know, I, I like to switch fields. I like to learn and, and sort of continually be challenged, right. My sort of like meandering path through my background sort of clears, clearly shows that. Uh, but I've always been a big fan of sort of math and analytics and applied side of things. Uh, so other than sort of my post-college dropout dirtbag years, uh, which is, you know, when I did a lot of the, you know, weirder, more esoteric stuff, uh, you know, I, I joined the Air Force and I started as a meteorologist there, very much an applied science side of thing, right? Using models, using right. data, making forecasts, and, you know, had enough of sort of a science-y and math bit that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that really sort of like, me right like we weren't the ones building the models it's not like we were guys working at like you know the, the research stations things like that but that sort of has shaped a lot of what i've done since then you know i went 
back to school, actually got a degree in mathematics, ended up in insurance uh, after, you know, sort of spending some more time in the retail and service. So I was like kind of wandered around, but always with that idea of like, how are we going to use data? How are we going to make better decisions? And mm-hmm. was lucky to be at an insurance company now almost 12 years ago. That was, I think, early on in saying, hey, how are we going to use data science and sort of this emerging field coming out of the tech industries to change how we do business. And insurance is really an interesting space to have done that because insurance has, I mean, a long, long history of using data to make decisions, right? Actuarial science, sort of like precursors of statistics, right? So totally. No, in one regard, you could almost look at them as like one of the like OG data science fields. But yep, I'd totally see that. But it's also been doing things the same way for a long time. And it does that because they work, but it also then has, you know, some sort of some reticence to move into new and different things. And so it was really cool to be at a place that had both a long history of using data, but then also enormous amounts of opportunity and changing how they can do that. Um, and so I was obviously coming at it from working in the business, working as an actuary, you know, more the analytics side and really was lucky. Didn't always feel that way at the time as we were building an on-prem Hadoop cluster to do all this stuff. And realizing how hard the tech was, especially at a non-tech company, right? You're dealing with IT outsourced to contractors to do the work and everything. And like the tech side ended up being sort of like the biggest challenge. And so I kind of got put on that. Now I won't say against my will, but sort of against where I would like to spend my time, which is with the business and working on the projects, Uh but got stuck on the tech side. And really then that was a huge opportunity, you know, in right like honestly the hardest problems are usually the ones where there's the most opportunity and so spent you know a few years there helping to sort of build the team and the, and the platform went over to another company to do that and then moved over to tech now about sort of six seven years ago really to focus on working with sort of my former peers in in the sort of like those non-core tech industries especially but you know any company that's really sort of changing trying to change what they do to make data science AI, whatever the sort of how we're describing the moment, a a stronger fabric of their business, right? Because if you don't start with data as that sort of core asset from the beginning, which most companies, you know, have been around long enough to not have done that, right? It's it's a big culture and strategy change stuff like that. So that's sort of where I've now been lucky to focus and do across industries and companies at different maturity and stuff. And so it's been a a weird journey to get here in some respects, but um, you know. It's it's a blast, so I can't complain. That's that is awesome, and yeah, I mean, light so much of life is about the journey, what brings us there, and, and the backgrounds we bring from all of that that kind of bring us to what we're doing today. Talk to me about um, how you started working. You've been there for a number of years at Data IQ. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you started working there, and um, maybe I guess for people that don't know, tell them a little bit about Data IQ and what problem they're currently solving sure. for customers. Sure. And so to talk sort of real quick about Data IQ, Data IQ is a an analytics workbench, right? And so it is designed to be a single source for building data products, regardless of complexity. So sort of that from your most basic things, you know, just doing, you know, data pipelines to feed a BI dashboard or a report or something, all the way through to leveraging the latest and greatest technology of, you know, deep learning or generative AI or wherever, whatever we're talking about two years from now, you know, we're sort of that framework and that platform that allows you to bring all those different tools and have all your users with different capabilities work on it. So there are 
the sort of full code capabilities for engineers and data scientists and your work technical people. But also there are, you know, there's a GUI, there are ways for those non-technical users who know the data and know, you know, the business and the problems to also be able to work with it in sort of one platform. And then we sit sort of wherever you want to sit architecturally. We come from the Hadoop space. So that's actually where I met Didaik, who was now almost seven years ago, uh, doing a POC, looking at it when we were okay. still managing an on-prem cluster. We obviously now have sort of, you know, on-prem in VPCs, a fully SaaS offering, right? Sort of we cover all those different, you know, deployment capabilities for any industry. Again, we're sort of general purpose. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's was a big part of the excitement for me when I had the opportunity to come over here was, you know, I'd done this in the military and in the meteorology space and in retail working at Starbucks and then in insurance. And I'd sort of seen different domains walk through this journey of trying to be more mm-hmm. data driven and more AI driven. And so I really wanted to sort of have that opportunity to go and somewhere where I could look across industries and see yeah. what's similar and yeah. what's different, right? And okay. the thing that's really my hypothesis going in that so far as, you know, holding sort of true is that there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. Like the the use cases may be different from an industry to an industry. Like, so what a finance company wants to work on project-wise is going to be different than what a manufacturing company does, et cetera. But the structural changes, the cultural changes, the sort of challenges in moving there, I see a lot more similarities across industries than I do see differences, which has been the fun part of sort of sitting on this side of the fence and being able to look across so many different companies at different stages of maturity from all different industries. Uh, that's what brought me here. And that's what's keeping me here on this tech side for, for now. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I would be curious, you know, based off of what you're currently seeing at Data IQ, so the problems you're solving, what are some predictions about changes you see in AI and perhaps AI in the enterprise um, over the next number of years? Where do you see, yeah. uh, where do you things, see things going, changing? What are what are the big shifts you, you are forecasting? So the biggest one for me probably really comes down to sort of who, who is doing this at enterprises, right? There's still, mm-hmm. and and for a long time, there was that sort of barrier to entry of working with, you know, large scale data, working with predictions of such, of having to have the programming skills to be able to work with it. Whether it was, you know, going back to sort of days of using SaaS and, you know, things like, um, you know, like the various tools that IBM had created and things like that, where you had to go to the tool that did it and it required some level of sort of coding or, or expertise. Um, through to R and Python and whatever. And so, you know, for the last 10 years, anytime you'd hear somebody say, hey, I want to get into data science. What do I want to do? What do I have to do? And it's, you know, go learn R or go learn Python or go, you know, mm-hmm. learn some tool. And I think that's going to continue to sort of fade away. And, you know, for me, yeah, there are still problems where that actually you need to have that scale of the data or it's streaming or it's things like that where you need to have those skill sets. But I think as we continue to lower the barrier to entry to working with larger sets of data, to working with more complex sort of algorithmic and 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 analytical approaches, that that knowledge of the data and that knowledge of the domain and the problems to solve continues to become more important and we make it easier for those folks that are in the business making decisions today or are, you know, across the, you know, across companies, how do you get them into this this world of making these decisions without having to be a programmer themselves, right? And uh-huh. then I think that that's the second part that really starts to change is I think companies will start to change how they hire and how they train across, or I say, should say the more successful companies, 
will change how they hire and how they think about bringing people into the organization. You know, one of the companies, one of the questions I always love to ask a company when they're sort of talking about, well, we want to be more AI driven, right? Is, is uh-huh. what is that? What does that mean? How does that change? Right. And, you know, it's not just hire a bunch of data scientists that are going to, you know, sit off onto the side making projects that, you know, they throw over the fence. And, you know, we've all sort of seen the challenges of getting things deployed and everything. But, you know, I, mm. I'll ask him, I was like, okay, so what does that, what does that mean to you? How does that change? You know, when you talk about being more AI driven, are you going to go out and add to your interview process for hiring salespeople that they know how to work with data, that they use data to make their decisions and that, you know, that's going to change how you go out to market and sell? Are you hiring HR people, you know, your people managers with a, what is their viewpoint on, you know, leveraging data science tools, you know, things like, um, you know, like a sharing prediction risk or employee, you know, flight risk, things like that, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and if the, you know, and the answer is more often than not, especially when you're talking to sort of those business leaders is like, oh no, that's weird. Why would I ask a salesperson how good they are working with data? Right. But that's right. If you want a data-driven company, that is everybody. That's not just mm-hmm. hiring a bunch of analysts who are building things in the corner. That's an essential component of it, to be fair, right? You need to have those yeah. people who can build it, but you can't just create it, right? There, This isn't the field of dreams. It's not you build it and they will come, right? Like you need to be hiring people in every facet of your business who are looking to work with data, who are looking to work with analytics and AI products. That's how you have to change it. And I think that we'll start to see, they think there's still a sort of a fundamental gap in many companies and really understanding the need for changing especially people, right? I think that's actually one of the hardest parts to change. You know, we think about the technology, the technology is hard, right? I, I don't want to pretend mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, maintaining, especially the pace of change of the technology, you know, like, you know, that sort of today, like working with, you know, one of the three big hyperscaler vendors for your cloud platform is, is a given and everybody sort of has their cloud strategy. But, you know, 10 years ago, I spent six months trying to get, you know, a company to go onto cloud and it was a, a non-starter for, you know, for a year and five years ago it started to become more accepted today now it's sort of almost the default i mean it's entirely feasible that 10 years from now nobody goes to any of the three clouds that sort of we go to today like who the hell knows right like true so yeah so that pace of change of technology is is really challenging and I, i don't want to underscore that by any means but like you the harder people are way harder than technology in the end right and so if you look at a company that's got you know, even the small company, right? A company of a thousand people. And I, you know, not to sort of like air dirty, like, you know, like I look at sort of sometimes in, even within data IQ, I'm like, Hey, we preach this. You don't even always act that way in sort of like how right. our hiring decisions, things like that. And we're not start, we're not that big a company and we're only 10 years old. So, you know, you look at a, at a big, you know, manufacturer who's got 20,000 employees or 50,000 employees around the world and has been around for a hundred or 200 years. Like, you have to change so much and it's at every layer of yeah. the organization. And so that's that change. So I think that we'll start to see more companies really start to think about the people side of this holistically across their companies. Um, and then that will play into sort of those lowering those barriers to entry. Um, and then the last thing that, you know, I'll just say is I think that the pace of change will really continue to just, okay. Just be a, uh, ever accelerating challenge, right? You know, I think that mm-hmm. you know, that's where that's one thing that we're continuing to have to sort of keep up from. And I'm really curious. I, I think that, you know, some of the biggest companies 
the world will will end up really being sort of crushed by this the in, the inability to keep pace with the change of the technology, especially when you look at you know and, and coming from you know a, a time in financial services, financial services has you know long been a more data driven organization. You know you go back to sort right. of who were the first adopters of IBM mainframes and decision making stuff and algorithms. It was, you know uh, financial services was certainly one of the biggest areas. And they're still now beholden to some of those tech decisions that they made 50, 60 years ago in some cases. And so like first mover advantage in some cases is actually like trapped companies with, you know, there's all the jokes around that, you know, the entire world global financial system was run on mainframes and Excel. And like, it's, <laughs> it's a joke that's like kind of scarily true, uh, having <laughs> lived that side of the fence. And so, I believe it. you know, I... I think that that pan continues to get kicked by a lot of companies as, you know, say, oh, well, we want to move off of this, whatever this system that we have, you know, processing customer transactions or whatever that we bought 50 years ago, we've got all this crazy stuff tied into this, you know, mainframe. And every time you go, hey, we should change that. And, you know, you go, oh, well, it'll be $100 million, maybe. Right? Like the the price tag of these is humongous. Yeah. And everybody yeah. goes, well, what do we get for $100 million? And the answer is usually, well, the same thing you have today, just not on 50 year old technology. And so then everybody says like, well, okay, well then why are we going to go spend this like tens or sometimes, you know, hundred million or more dollars to make that change? Well, you know, the Southwest airlines example earlier this year where they sort of had yeah. their computer system go down and it was precisely that it was just an old system and shit breaks and it broke yep. and it cost them tens of millions of dollars in, you know, a span of hours because of that. Yeah. And I think we're going to see a couple more examples like that where big companies old companies who've got this sort of technology really have big data system failures and it's going to force the hand of some of the you know these companies that have just and and a, hey we all understand market forces we all understand this making quarterly returns and stuff and it's hard to go to the market and say hey you know we're going to eat hundreds of millions of dollars you know in costs over the next three to five years for for almost nothing, right? Essentially, risk yeah. mitigation. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants to do that, and no CEO wants to go to the board and say, like, "Hey, we're taking this giant chunk of change out of our profits or out of our returns to shareholders or whatever for the next few years." But like, it's going to happen, and it's going to have to happen soon. And so that's one that I really I, like, sort of like spectating. I'm like, "Ooh, like who who is this going to happen to?" Because it's like I couldn't tell you there because most companies have this risk out there right so that is it's it's a scary yeah, that is such a that's such an interesting thought but yeah it's totally true like there's so much archaic tech out there there's people tied into it and like you said right now we're just seeing like this rapid change this rapid advancement of ai everyone's got to get like on the newest thing as fast as possible um and maybe by kicking the can down the road for the last 20 years these people have put themselves in a really bad spot like maybe you know, like you, you mentioned, of course, Southwest Airlines, the whole system goes down. Of course, they're going to feel the pain from that. But maybe like that's not the only pain people are feeling is a system failure. Maybe the other pain is like they don't adapt as fast. And like that's the system failure, right? It's like their their yeah. lack of adapting quick enough. They're going to get beat by a competitor and, and like eat market share, lose market share very quickly. It's like such a tricky question because, you, you know, you can be the first mover like, hey, there's something new. And then, you know, spend five years chasing a technology that, that dies like map R or something. That, right like mm -hmm. you can build on things that then end up not working out in the long run and so there's this sort of like weird sweet side of saying okay 
we're not the first movers, but we're not the laggards. Like, how do you sort of keep pace with that, you know, change, change of technology? Um, it's a real struggle. It really, really is. And, you know, I think that, that I'm actually one, one potential change, uh, which I've started to see in some companies that I actually am curious to see if this continues to tell you is sort of IT as an organization moving sort of a little back to like its roots a little bit, you know, it really sort of over the last couple of decades, at least, and probably even longer, you know, we've seen IT become much more of a, like an organization that just manages software that it buys yeah. from other places. And most of that through outsourcing, right. Where companies don't have internal engineering talent anymore. In most cases, these bigger companies and, you know, it, it, and maybe I'm biased by the data space where so much of it's built on open source and so much of it, you know, sort of requires that ability to go, um, you know, to go that direction is companies are really starting to bring some more of that, that engineering and talent expertise back in house. I think sometimes they do so from a slightly misguided perspective. Sometimes they build things that they really should go by, but yeah, that, that thought that you can't just buy all of your software and be successful as a company. I'm curious to see if that shift continues because we've seen some more insourcing and some more companies beefing out their internal tech um, a little bit. And I, I imagine that that trend will continue. Very, very interesting. One thing that um, I've heard you mention in the past, uh, you've talked a little bit about how AI is instead of, you know, it's it's more of being evolutionary rather than kind of a sudden overhaul. We're talking about sure. the path to AI for, for companies. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and at the same time, talk about some of the common points of failure in AI projects um, and how those can be avoided. Yeah. So the evolutionary idea, you know, it's something that I sort of have been, have been mulling over for a while, sort of like watching, like what makes a company successful or not successful in the changes. Right. And, you know, um, you hear people sort of talk big pronouncements about like, you know, oh, we're going to like overhaul everything and be more AI driven. And, you know, or you know, now we're an AI first company and stuff. And I think it's usually just words for the street, but um, sure, yeah. It's interesting to see what does work and what is successful and what does push things out. And it's a, it is a change that takes time. Uh, you know, every organization is going to have sort of their different pace at which they can move that, but you can't just turn over, you know, and again, even as company at our scale with, you know, 1200, 1300 people, like it takes us time to move and change things, let alone big companies with decades of history and, you know, tens of thousands of employees. And so making these changes you have to make really, like, be really committed to the iterative process that it takes to go into mm -hmm. that. And I think that that's one of the things that I've sort of seen where companies, from a strategic perspective, you know, fail the most is they they try something, it doesn't work out, and a year later they're, you know, carve off a whole team or sort of start from scratch again and. Mm -hmm. I think that we're too quick in most cases to sort of just give up on a path and say that didn't work or the opposite of just put our heads in the sand and keep going. Cause we said, this is the way that we're going to go and we're just going to keep going. Right. Um, and I remember talking with, you know, someone, you know, a former colleague where we we're having a conversation about sort of like the hiring patterns. Right. You know, and I uh -huh. worked there and hired a bunch of people and worked with this person and sort of said, you know, Oh, here's how I think about hiring look at these different profiles and sort of like, here's how I've sort of adjusted my thinking. Like, how are you guys doing things differently now? You know, it'd been like five years since we've worked together. And they were just like, oh, I hired the exact same way as you always have. And I was sort of like, a little sort of like taken aback, like, okay, that made sense five years ago, six years ago when we tried it. 
and it, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> right. Like that team is not where you wanted it to be. Part of the reason that I didn't work there anymore. And you sort of say like, okay, like, why are you still doing something the same way? I get why we tried it and it made sense. Right. So like, it's weird that you sort of end up with these two, either like companies are like, ah, oh, we gave it six months and it doesn't work. Throw it away. Or, you know, five years later, you're still trying the same thing. And it's like, you have to be willing to try and give something mm. enough time. And I think that that like coming up with, uh, you know, the, what is your exit strategy? Like, when do you say mm. no? But like, you have to give it enough time to try it out, but then you have to have a plan for then saying, here's, here's when we're going to say, nope, this isn't the path. And we need to, right. to tweak and to turn into that. And so that like evolutionary idea, like you have to be trying things, you have to be iterating, but it's a, it's a slow process. It's a process of years. It's not a process of months. And so watching that sort of play out in different companies, I think has been really interesting to see some of those things that work and some of those that don't, but that like embracing that sometimes this will work and sometimes it's going to fail. And like, how are we going to decide if it's working or if it's failing? And then if it's not working, what's the decision process for iterating on that? I think far too yeah. often we just sort of make a plan that's, you know, good for three or five years and either we stick to it all the way through, or if it doesn't work, we just say that it didn't work and we just sort of go away completely rather than having a process for like iteratively working on and changing and then updating how we're yeah. approaching it. Yeah. I think that's such an important part of, uh, of creating like you know, it's the fine line between having innovation, but also you move too early and, uh, you know, you have those kind of issues. So, so many different interesting things. Connor, thank you so much yeah. for sharing your insights with My us pleasure. today. Um, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. If people want to um, get in contact with you or find out about some of the things you guys are working on at Dataiku, how, what's the best way for them to, uh, you know, contact you or, or uh, learn more? So I'd easy to find on LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest way to just get a hold of me, you know, Connor Jensen, uh, Data IQ on LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to our website, www.dataiku.com. Uh, There's about a million different pronunciations out there, but you know, that's that's the place to find us. Uh, I've been hoping I did it right, but okay. There's, good. there's more. As more a global to... company, there's a lot of variations. So, don't, so uh, there's a lot of right answers, I guess. Um, so yeah, so the website, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to, to dig in more, uh, you know, at the website, we've got a lot of our sort of like where we've focused in different, um, industries or, you know, different technologies looking at like generative AI or pieces like that. So, you know, please feel free to reach out, you know, always happy to go deeper on these topics. And, uh, thanks for having me because I really enjoyed the conversation, Jaden. Thanks so much, Connor. And to the listener, thanks so much for tuning in to the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts and have an amazing rest of your If you are looking for an innovative and creative community of people using ChatGPT, you need to join our ChatGPT creators community. I'll drop a link in the description to this podcast. We'd love to see you there where we share tips and tricks of what is working in ChatGPT. It's a lot easier than a podcast as you can see screenshots, you can share and comment on things that are currently working. So if this sounds interesting to you, check out the link in the comment. We'd love to have you in the community. Thanks for tuning in to the AI Hustle podcast. If you could do us a massive favor, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. This helps people find the podcast. It helps people know this is a good place to go. And we would really, really appreciate it as it helps us continue to bring on incredible guests and share incredible content for you to listen to.
Welcome to the OpenAI Podcast, the podcast that opens up the world of AI in a quick and concise manner. Tune in daily to hear the latest news and breakthroughs in the rapidly evolving world of artificial intelligence.